At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. Today, we invite you to tune in for our current series, Revealed, stories with purpose as we study the parables of Jesus, reading stories with the power to reveal God's truth in our lives. Good morning. My name is Abraham Phillip. I'm part of the teaching team here at Woodside. I'm so privileged that Billy asked me to speak this weekend. Happy 4th of July uh, to all of you. And um, Joe Biondo, I think one of your church members, sent me a, 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 um, a link to a music video, a God Bless America. It was, it was just beautiful. Just reminded us, reminded me and my family the beautiful blessings we have of living in a free country. Amen? A free country that lets us be free, free to worship God, free to be who we are, but ultimately that freedom comes ultimately at the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that at that cross, better than all the other freedoms we have, we have freedom from sin and death and bondage to slavery, and we have Jesus Christ. And that freedom eclipses all the other freedoms. So praise God for all of the freedoms that we enjoy. You know, as an elder at uh, the Troy campus, I have the privilege of interviewing many people for uh, membership into the, into the church. And um, one of the reasons we do that is to make sure that the people who are, who are trying to get into the church are saved. I mean, that's a kind of a good thing, right? And so um, one of the questions I tend to ask people when I'm interviewing them is, you know, if you were to die today, not that you will, but if you were to die today and, and you went to stand before God and God asked you, why should I let you in? What would you say? Would it surprise you that more than often they would say something like this? I'm a good person. I've done more good things than bad things. I mean, I'm, I'm good. Right? Isn't that enough? And what's really sad is that that statement or that idea is becoming more and more prevalent in Christian circles. I'm going to put up on the screen a survey done by Pew Research. It's a 2017 study done by the Pew Research of Protestants. These are Protestants. Just over half of those respondents said that works and good works are required for entry into heaven. There's a lot more bad stuff in that slide. I just want to highlight that one. More than half of Protestant, Bible-believing, Jesus-professing Christians say that good works are required for us to get to heaven. Do you realize that that's what the world religions say? Almost all, in fact, every world religion other than Christianity says that if you do enough good works to outweigh your bad works, you will be right with God and you can enter heaven. That's what's so different about Jesus and the Scriptures because the Bible says that the only way to heaven is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's it, and nothing more. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's a survey of Protestants. But that's at the heart of the parable we're going to look at, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's found in Luke chapter 18. You can turn there with me. But as you turn there, let me remind you that parables are, are delightful, heartwarming stories told by Jesus that have a purpose. They have a message. And if you remember uh, way back in the first message that was preached by John Morales, you know, when we were all sitting at home on our couches in our PJs, remember? And John Morales told us that parables 
are stories told by Jesus that draw you in. They're delightful, they're heartwarming, they capture our mind and they capture our heart like any good story. And like any good story, they draw you in. And just before you realize it, the parable comes along and smacks you upside the head with a powerful message. And if you remember John telling us that parables create space. It creates space between us and our objects of worship. It creates space between our reality of life and the reality of the kingdom of God. And in that space that this parable creates, God intersects with us and interacts with us. And in that process, captures our hearts and minds. That's what parables are meant to do. It's meant to create that space so that God can reveal to us who He is and what the kingdom of God is like. And so before we read this passage, which was already presented for us, just let me remind you that Jesus is on His final journey to Jerusalem. He's walking the road to Jerusalem for the final time with His disciples, perhaps with a a larger audience of people who are following Him to listen to Him. And Jesus is taking this time to tell His disciples what the kingdom of God looks like, and who God the Father, what He's like. And it's in that context, it's in that overarching umbrella of a context that He tells this parable. Read with me Luke chapter 18, starting in verse number 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, And the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is one of the few parables that Jesus told where we actually get the reason why he told the parable. You see, the reason is found in verse number 9. And in verse number 9, Jesus, looking at the crowd that was following him, recognizes that there are people there who are self-righteous, who consider themselves better than everyone else. And so they look down upon people. They have contempt. They despise people who don't live like them, who don't talk like them, who don't behave like them. And that's what verse 9 says. And and as a result of knowing the hearts of people, Jesus tells them this parable. And ultimately, at this parable, we have obviously the Pharisee and the tax collector. But many people, as they read this story, they think that Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. You all have a picture of the Pharisee in your head, right? But I have to tell you, I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus is actually just talking to his audience in general, right? Because this kind of an attitude could apply to his disciples, right? 
The disciples could have been looking down their noses at everyone else because they're the privileged few who get to stick with Jesus for three and a half years. Look what I did. He could have been addressing the rest of the people in the crowd who had a self-righteous attitude. It's not just the Pharisee who has this problem, is it? It's you and me, if we're honest with ourselves. Because we think that if we can just come to God with a list of the things that we've done, that we can enter into heaven. But what this parable teaches is that that's not true. That while there may be two approaches we take to approach God, there's only one way that's right. And that's what the rest of this parable tries to unpack for us. And so let's dive deeper into this parable. The first thing we can say about this parable is that it does teach us how two people approach God. Two ways people approach God. In these verses, we have two people. And those two people represent two different ways that people approach God. So let's take both of them. First, we have the Pharisee. The Pharisee, I know you all have a picture in your mind about the Pharisee, but I want you to park it for a minute. Because when Jesus mentioned the Pharisee, the people who were listening to him would have had a different reaction. These were upstanding citizens. These were honorable men. These were perhaps the highest level of the social order. These were men people looked up to. These were highly religious men who tried their level best to live according to God's law. They were good people. You see, the, the Pharisees were a group of men who, who banded together during the intertestamental period. And they did so in order to try and live as close and as perfectly as they could to the law of God so that they wouldn't fall back into idolatry, which is why they were exiled before, if you remember. And so they did everything they could to honor God, to live a right life, to follow the law of God, and to do it as perfectly as they could. I mean, this is the kind of guy you wanted as a neighbor, right? He was an upstanding person. He was good. You knew he wasn't throwing wild parties at night. You knew he wasn't cheating. You knew he wasn't doing all sorts of bad things. This was good. This is the guy you wanted to emulate. Keep that picture in your mind. And so this Pharisee, he comes to the temple, and not an unusual sight to see a Pharisee in the temple. People like the Pharisee, good religious people, would come to the, the temple perhaps once or twice a day because they had two sacrifices daily, one at nine in the morning and one at three in the afternoon. That's when they would sacrifice and people would come to pray. The Pharisee would have come, and it would not be unusual to see a Pharisee in, or many Pharisees in the temple. And so he comes into the temple, strides right up into the temple, right to the area where the altar of God is, and he parks himself before that altar in a quiet place to pray. Not an unusual sight. And notice what he says. Verse number 11, the second part, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He begins wonderfully. He thanks God. God, I thank you. And I think there's a lot of truth to what he said, right? I thank you. I'm not like other people. I'm not as bad as I could be. Thank God for that. That I am what I am simply by the grace of God. That God has kept me from the depths of my depravity. Praise God. Amen? And so he starts off, well, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other people. 
Now, I think we have to take the Pharisee at face value. I think everything he said is true. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat. He's not unjust. He's not an evil person. He's a good guy. I think we take him at face value. He has a high standard. And he holds himself to that high standard. The problem, though, is that while he's on his high perch, he looks down his spiritual nose at everyone else. Because what does he say at the very end? I'm not like that other guy, that tax collector. So while he is a good person, that goodness that he creates in himself causes him to look down on other people. And notice he goes on to say in verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, this guy is good. The Bible only requires you to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Just once. Religious people, you'd fast once a week. This guy, I'm going to double all that. I'm I'm fasting twice a week. I got this down. Tithing? The Bible says 10% of anything you earn. This guy, if I pluck a leaf, a mint leaf, and there are 10 leaves, one's going to God. He tithes everything. From his garden to his produce to his everything he earns, he's tithing. He is so good. He doesn't want to leave anything out. He's really good. Essentially what he's saying, if I could sum it up, is, Hey God, I'm such a great guy. Look at all the wonderful things I've done. Aren't I so good? And that's essentially what the Pharisee is saying. But this is the first way to approach God. We come to God... Thinking that all the good things we've done, all the good things that we've accomplished, all the things we've been able to do merit God's love for us. Merits the ability for us to draw near to God to enter into the kingdom. That this is good for us. We build a spiritual resume. You ever do anything in your life? You take a job or you volunteer at a place just to make it into your resume because you know it'll make you look good? Come on, be honest. Two of you. Okay, maybe just with me. You ever serve on a board or work with a group of people because you know that it will set your resume apart from everybody else. It will make you marketable and put you in the best position to get hired. Oh, come on. You know, it's all right. I'll just preach to myself because I've done it. Shame on me, but I've done it. And what we do is we carry that mindset into our Christian walk with Christ and we bring our spiritual resume. We do things and we check off these boxes and we think, God, I've done, look, I've done it. See my resume? I'm good. I'm not a bad person. I haven't hurt anybody. I mean, look at that guy over there. I'm better than Billy. I'm not, but like, see, we start comparing ourselves with other people. Look, I'm better than Because that's the way we think God deals with us. That we can come to God in confidence because we've got all of these wonderful things on our resume. That God's got to accept me before he accepts somebody else. I mean, come on, I'm a good guy. And that's how the Pharisee came to the temple that day. Came with his self-righteousness. Came with his confidence in himself. Came with his list of, of, of his obedience. Thinking that that's what would get him Access into God, into heaven. That's certainly one way to approach God. The second way is found in the tax collector. 
And you saw it in the video. We read it. It's just a simple verse. At the same time, the Pharisee goes to the temple. We have a tax collector. Now, the tax collector, if you know, were the most hated people in Israel. The most hated people. They were hired, they were Jews, hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people. And what the tax collectors would do is that they would collect a little bit more than what you owed and they would skim off the top and and put it in their pocket. That's how they got rich. All tax collectors were rich because they take a little bit off the top and put it in their pocket. As a result, they were considered traitors. People hated them. If the tax collector walked around without escort, they'd get spit at. They couldn't hold public office. They couldn't give testimony in court. And the fact that this tax collector went to the temple is a most unusual sight. Because tax collectors didn't go to the temple. You notice in verse 13 that he stands far off because he can't get any closer because if he gets closer, the temple guards would throw him out because his kind is not welcome in the temple. They're the scum of the earth. That's the contrast between these two people. And this tax collector, he comes to the temple and notice in verse 13 it says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He couldn't draw near to God. He didn't have the confidence or the boldness of the Pharisee. He couldn't approach that altar. He stood way in the back, probably in the court of the Gentiles where the riffraff stood. Just enough to look forward, but not close enough. He's so overcome with shame and sin and guilt. He can't even lift up his head. He can't even lift up his eyes because the weight of his sin and the overwhelming shame that he had because of who he was kept his head down. Ever felt that kind of overcoming shame and sin and guilt that you couldn't just lift up your head to look at anyone? That's what this tax collector is feeling. He's got no worth to come in. He knows it. He knows that the people around him hate him. He knows that he's done wrong. He knows. But he comes to the temple overcome, broken. There's no attempt to bring any list of deeds, anything good. It probably weren't any. There's no excuses that he's built up. There's no looking to hide behind anybody. He's not comparing himself to anybody. Because there's nobody he can compare himself to. And all he does is he throws himself at the feet of God and he says one simple statement. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Beating a chest is a sign of intense anguish. This is a man who is broken. This is a man who's got nothing left. This is a man who's reached the bottom of every barrel and he's got no place left to go. And so he comes to the only place where he can find healing and that is to the feet of God. And he throws himself there and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
The word mercy that's translated there comes from a Greek word, hilestatai. That word's going to get out, put on the screen. Can you say that with me? Hilestatai. <laughs> All right, for the rest of you who didn't bring your New Testament Bible with you, hilestatai. Say it with me. Hilestatai. That word, that Greek word, is typically translated propitiation. Now, I know, I know that's not a Greek word. That's actually an English word. I, I promise you. Propitiation. Propitiation or propitiate is to appease the wrath of God against sin. To appease the wrath of God against sin. It's a picture of what happens on the one day a year, on the day called the Day of Atonement, where the Israelites bring two goats to the, to the high priest. And the high priest takes one of those goats and it slits and he slits the throat and he takes the blood and he goes very carefully into the holy place and he very carefully opens that veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. You remember this story. And he sprinkles that blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid and that lid was called the mercy seat. And he sprinkles that blood on the mercy seat. And in so doing, he was making propitiation. He was appeasing the wrath of a holy God for the sins of the people. And essentially what this tax collector is saying is, God, make propitiation for me. I've blown it. I've messed up. I've got no place to go. This is the only place where my sins can be dealt with. God, make propitiation for me. Take my sin and cover it under the blood on the mercy seat. That's what he's praying. One simple sentence, but a sentence so packed with power and hurt and pain and sorrow and brokenness. God, make propitiation for me, a sinner. This is the second way we can approach God. Where we come with nothing in our hand, recognizing that there is nothing in our hands that we can bring, we can just simply cling to that cross. Recognizing that we've messed up, that we've blown it, that we are just like everybody else, that there is nobody that we can compare ourselves to, that all we can do is fall at the feet of Jesus. And all we can do is repent and throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. You remember as kids, you would wrestle with one another and you'd put somebody in a headlock and you'd hold it there until what? Until they tapped out or until they called what? Uncle! What did that mean? Stop! It's hurting! I can't take anymore! That's what he cried. He cried, Uncle! I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. God, would you save me? Folks, these are two ways to approach God. We can either approach God in our self-righteousness, in our confidence, and thinking that all of the things that we've done stand up to the righteousness of God, that we are a good person. We're not bad people. We don't go around killing people and cheating and everything else. I mean, we're good people. Or we can come broken. not relying on anything that we have, nothing in our hands, and simply crying uncle to God. Now, which of these two ways is right? 
You see, both of these ways are diametrically opposed to each other. One is full of self-righteousness. The other is full of nothing, emptiness. There's self-reliance here. There's no reliance on anything here. So which of these two ways is right? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us with any questions because in verse number 14, Jesus goes on to tell us that the way of the kingdom is a heart matter. The way of the kingdom is a heart matter. He says in the beginning of verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Jesus leaves us with no question about which one of these two did it right. He says, the tax collector went home justified. Now you have to remember, everybody who's listening to the story as Jesus told it would have been shocked by what Jesus said. You see, because as far as they were concerned, the, the Pharisee had the fast track to God. He lived according to the law. He did all of the things that were right and required. He lived a morally good life. He had the resume to hold up to say, look how good I am. Isn't this what it takes? Jesus, in a stunning reversal, says, no, it's not what it the tax collector went home justified. So that begs the question, what does the word justified mean? Justified is a word that means that God declares us righteous, which means He declares us right with God. And in that word is the understanding that God has forgiven our sin. That tax collector came in broken and threw himself on the feet of Jesus. And he cried, uncle. And Jesus looks at that man and he says, your sins are forgiven and I declare you right with God. That's what right, justification or righteousness means. You see, it's a simple cry for mercy that lifted this tax collector up to the throne room of God. But this Pharisee, who came in with all of his stuff, was so weighed down by his confidence that he couldn't rise to that throne room. Because the Pharisee forgot what it says in Isaiah chapter 64, where the prophet Isaiah says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Or what Romans tells us in Romans chapter 3, or what Paul tells us in Romans 3, We've all sinned. There is no one righteous, no, not one. That's very offensive to people. I remember being in Germany and leading a small group, and I was in Romans chapter 3, and I said, you realize what this verse means? This means that nobody here is righteous. There's nobody here who does good. People were offended. What do you mean I'm not a good person? They walked out. <laughs> It's offensive. The scriptures are offensive because it challenges our preconceptions. It challenges the heart. It challenges our ideas. And in that space, we either connect with God in surrender or we walk away. There is no one righteous. There's no one who does good. No, not one. The kingdom of God is a heart matter. Because what happens in the heart is what matters to God. And so, as we look at what this tax collector did, he cried uncle who cried mercy. It reminds me of 
the, story, the song Isaac Watts wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, all my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. There's nothing we have. There's nothing we can hold up. Do you realize that there is nothing we can hold up that measures to God? You see, we think we can just compare ourselves to everybody else. That if we're just as good as somebody else or better, we're okay. But Jesus says, the standard of measure isn't other people. Your standard of measure is God. How does your resume look against a matchless, magnificent, mighty God? We've got the wrong standard of measure. That was the Pharisee's problem. In his heart, he thought he was good enough. In the tax collector's heart, he knew he wasn't good enough. My friends... God cares about your heart. And that the kingdom of God is a heart matter. You notice at the end of verse 14, Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. But this is the exact opposite of what we normally think, isn't it? I mean, isn't it normal to think that appearances are everything when blessed are the rich? Blessed are the popular, blessed are the celebrity, blessed are the prosperous. Rarely do we think of what Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? I mean, come on. Appearances are everything. I guarantee you, every one of you looked in the mirror before you came here. If you didn't, shame on you. <laughs> but we did. Because appearances are important, but appearances aren't everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Out on the outside, the tax collector may have been rich, but inside, morally, emotionally, spiritually, in every other way, he was broken. He was a train wreck. He had nothing going for him. And when he comes to the temple and he lays himself before God and says, God, mercy. He goes home justified. He goes home right with God. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we're justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The tax collector went home at peace with God. The Pharisee went home still at war with God. That's the difference. The kingdom cares about your heart. Because your heart matters. God is more interested in your heart than in your resume. God is more interested in your brokenness than in your list of accomplishments. God is more interested in your repentance than in your strength because it's a matter of the heart. And so this begs us and leads us to ask another question. What qualifies us? What qualifies you and me to approach God? What right do we have to approach the throne room of God and say, God, welcome me in. And so let me ask you the question that I asked at the beginning that I would typically ask at an interview. If you were to die tonight, today, and you stood before God, what would you say to God to let you in? Would you hold up a list and say, look, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a really good guy, actually. Look, God, look at all the things I've done. 
Or do you say, Lord, I got nothing? You see, the problem with this other view, when we look at all the things that we've done, we tend to look down our spiritual noses at people at people <clears throat> who perhaps didn't come to church today. Look around. There's not a lot of people here. And we think, huh, Joey didn't make it. Hmm, I'm better than Joey. Or we look down at people who don't live like us or believe like us or talk like us or they, don't, they hold different views and, and beliefs than we do. We look down on people with contempt because they don't live like we do. So let me ask you a question. How many of you are glad, be honest, that you're not like the Pharisee? Oh, right. Three of you. Four of you, okay. How many of you are glad you're like the tax collector? And the rest of you, it'll hit you later. Can I just tell you, we shouldn't compare ourselves to either one of them. This is the trap in this parable. Because the minute we like one person and not the other, or like this person and not that person, we've made a value judgment on them. When we recognize that the foot of the cross is level ground, that every single one of us who comes to the foot of the cross is a train wreck, that we've got nothing to compare ourselves to. We can't even compare ourselves to this tax collector. We're not even as good as that. Because you see, at the foot of the cross, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. Do you believe that? We all need a Savior. There is nothing about us that merits God's approval. It doesn't matter where we've come from, what our ethnicity is, how much money we have, how many cars we have. It doesn't matter whether we have a summer home or not. It doesn't matter because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And we're all sinners. Sinking in miry clay, needing a Savior to reach in and grab us out and put, a, put us on a solid rock. We can't compare ourselves to either one of these. What qualifies you? May I tell you, only the blood of Jesus. Through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's all we can hold and claim to. If you're here this morning, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ by faith, if you've never come to that point in your life where you said, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm crying uncle today. Then may I encourage you to come to the cross. To lay your burdens. To lay your accomplishments. To lay your own strength and your own righteousness down at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, have mercy. If you do know him by faith, then let's not look down on people. Let's not lift ourselves up in arrogant pride. But let's remember that at the foot of the cross, our brothers and sisters all around the world who cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this short but wonderful story. Story that shows us the heart of God. A heart, <clears throat> your heart, that beats for our heart. Not all the things that we can do, not all the songs we can sing, not the fact that we can come to church or not. None of that matters. It's about the state of our heart. And so, Lord, would you look deep inside us? Would you examine us? Would you do in our lives what David said? Lord, search me and try me and see what wicked way there is in me. And would you reveal that to us? And may we repent, knowing we're no better than anyone else. God, have mercy on us. 
Would you have mercy on this land? Would you forgive us as a people? Would you forgive us as a nation? (coughs) And would you cause your face to shine upon us? And would you give us peace? Thank you for the cross. And thank you for Jesus. May we never forget that he was stripped and beaten and hung on a cross so that we might have life. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's worship God together. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together this week. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and to get you connected to the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.